This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Today, I'll be joined by Dr. Jennifer Fleming, a hepatologist from Queen's University. We will discuss some high-yield topics in hepatology, including the new Bovino 7 guidelines on portal hypertension and when to refer a patient with cirrhosis to hepatology. Dr. Fleming is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Public Health Sciences at Queen's University with clinical training in gastroenterology, hepatology, and liver transplantation. She is a clinician scientist who leads a research program leveraging ICES administrative data to evaluate the epidemiology and outcomes of patients with cirrhosis. She also serves as the chair for the Guidelines Committee of the Canadian Association for the Study of Liver Disease, is a member of the CASL Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee, in addition to being a member of the AASLD Women's Initiatives Committee. Thank you so much for recording with us today. No problem. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Alrighty. To get into it, what is portal hypertension and why is it important in the pathophysiology of cirrhosis? That's a great question. I think something that maybe we don't spend enough time teaching our clinical trainees about, but it's a very important state when we're talking about cirrhosis because it really alters individuals' natural history. So by definition, portal hypertension is elevated pressure within the portal vein. So normal portal pressure should be less than five millimeters of mercury, which is very similar to the right side of the heart. So this creates a very uh, low resistance flow state from the portal vein in through the liver to the hepatic veins and then back to the heart. So if you looked at a textbook of the definition of portal hypertension, it's pressure in the portal vein that's greater than five millimeters of mercury. Now there's different causes of portal hypertension. The most common cause is cirrhosis because of scarring and fibrosis of the liver, which leads to architectural distortion, which then creates resistance to flow, which increases portal pressure. However, there is a differential diagnosis for portal hypertension. You can have what we call pre-sinusoidal portal hypertension, typically where there's abnormalities within the portal vein itself, which leads to high pressures, or you can have post-sinusoidal portal hypertension, which where the portal pressures are elevated because of backflow of pressures, typically from the heart or the IVC. So if you have right-sided heart failure and elevated pressures, that's going to transmit down into the portal vein, which can also cause portal hypertension. Thank you. That makes much more sense to me now as a trainee myself. And how can we use non-invasive tools to diagnose and monitor for portal hypertension? So this is a kind of up and coming field, and it may be something that trainees have heard of, but are not really sure how to use non-invasive tools to diagnose portal hypertension. So previously we would diagnose portal hypertension in an individual with chronic liver disease who has a portal hypertensive complication or based on imaging showing features of splenomegaly, enlarged portal vein, et cetera. However, you can have portal hypertension and have completely normal imaging and not have had any complications of portal hypertension. Historically, that used to be diagnosed based on a um, hepatic venous pressure gradient, which is an invasive procedure where you measure pressures through the liver into the portal vein. However, with the advent of a more accurate non-invasive testing, we can now use transient elastography, better known as FibroScan, in order to identify clinically significant portal hypertension um, in the absence of any clinical or imaging features or of having an HVPG. 
So transient elastography measures the stiffness of the liver. And from that, there's been multiple studies which have tried to validate which cutoffs of kilopascal in transient elastography are associated with clinically significant portal hypertension. So universally, if an individual has a KPA of greater than 25 on transiently elastography, we would say that that uh, has a very good specificity to diagnose clinically significant portal hypertension. However, there are some caveats to that. And then depending on the guidelines that you look at, other things that we consider are looking at the platelet count, because we know when the platelet count is lower, that means that there's splenomegaly and that's typically from the presence of portal hypertension. So in somebody who has a kilopascal value between 15 to 25, but they have thrombocytopenia or their platelets are below 150, we also would consider that consistent with clinically significant portal hypertension. So the only real non-invasive test right now that we have to diagnose it is transient elastography or FibroScan which typically is available in a specialty clinic, but may not necessarily be available to individuals working outside of the specialty clinic, depending on where you live and your access to FibroScan. Thank you. And this may be an ignorant follow-up question, but do you regularly then screen patients that have sources, for example, with FibroScan to follow and possibly detect the presence of developing portal hypertension? Yes, we do. Yes. So if we have an individual we're following clinic with compensated cirrhosis without clinically significant portal hypertension that we can detect, it's recommended that they have a follow-up fiber scan approximately every year in order to see if they are developing clinically significant portal hypertension, because you may want to action on that if that is present. So yes. Okay. And recently, the Bovino 7 guidelines have introduced the concept of sort of clinically significant portal hypertension, which we've alluded to a couple times so far in our conversation. And what does this mean and why is it clinically important? Okay, so I'm going to go back to initially when we talked about what's the definition of portal hypertension. And we said that that's anything, any portal vein pressure that's greater than five millimeters of mercury. However, clinically significant portal hypertension is once the portal vein pressure is above 10 millimeters of mercury, because that's when we actually start to see complications from portal hypertension. So again, those cutoffs that I just talked about with respect to FibroScan are what we use to non-invasively detect clinically significant portal hypertension or that portal vein pressure greater or equal than to 10. However, clinically, you can also determine clinically significant portal hypertension if you've had a patient who's had a portal hypertensive decompensation, like had a variceal hemorrhage, the ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, or if on imaging in somebody with known chronic liver disease or cirrhosis, if you see radiographic features of portal hypertension, splenomegaly, dilated veins, that we would also consider to be clinically significant portal hypertension. So in general, if you were seeing a patient in front of you, you can diagnose clinically significant portal hypertension based on previous decompensation, imaging presence of portal hypertension, or the FibroScan criteria that we uh, mentioned earlier. Okay. So that's a lot of tools, I guess, we have in our arsenal to diagnose this entity. Mm -hmm. And if it's identified that someone has clinically significant portal hypertension or they're at high risk of that, are there any therapies that we can use to prevent the progression of it? Yes. So this is where the new Bovino 7 criteria have come into play. 
So historically, our approach to preventing portal hypertensive complications solely relied on our ability to prevent variceal hemorrhage. And so, as you're probably aware, we used to do endoscopies on all patients with cirrhosis to look for the presence of varices and then decide whether or not they would benefit from a non-selective beta blocker to prevent variceal hemorrhage. However, as we've been caring for patients with liver disease a lot longer and we're seeing some of the long-term outcomes from those original trials, it's become evident that individuals with clinically significant portal hypertension who are on non-selective beta blocker not only have a lower risk of variceal hemorrhage, but other portal hypertensive complications such as the development of ascites and the development of encephalopathy. So that's where Bovino 7 has kind of shifted our approach where in that if there's any evidence of clinically significant portal hypertension, they should be considered for non-selective beta blocker. The preferred agent is carvedilol. It's more efficient at lowering portal pressure and in trials, the outcomes are superior with carvedilol. The caveat to carvedilol, at least in an Ontario population, is that there's no limited use code for carvedilol for the indication of portal hypertension. And so some individuals may not have access to carvedilol. In that case, we still use natalol as well as propranolol to prevent portal hypertensive complications. There's also a bit of a caveat in how you dose these medications. For carvedilol, we use a standard dose where we titrate patients up to 6.25 milligrams BID. And as long as they're tolerating it, we stop there. However, for propranolol or natalol, we titrate the dose still to a target heart rate between 55 to 60. So depending on which agent you're able to use and which agent your patient can have access to, there's just a little bit of a nuance in the strategy of how you dose those beta blockers. Okay. And for people that may want to look further into the research for carbidolol in particular, is that the PREDC trial that looked at that's that? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where that's where all the all the good data is. <laughs> <laughs> and in reading the Vivino 7 guidelines and just in my own clinical learning, um, I've encountered a term sort of called cirrhosis recompensation. And uh, what does that mean? So cirrhosis recompensation really means that you have an individual with cirrhosis who's developed a decompensation event from portal hypertension. And over time, you are able to either stop the offending insult or the liver is able to regenerate itself to the point where the portal hypertensive complications go away. So we see that very often in patients with alcohol-associated liver disease who are able to achieve abstinence. We see that very commonly in patients with viral hepatitis where the either hepatitis B or C is able to be managed or in our population uh, with autoimmune um, liver disease where we're able to stop the injury that's going on to the liver. And then your liver is able to regenerate. It's able to get rid of some of that inflammation and may, and that what happens there is that it can affect your portal pressure. And if you're able to lower your portal pressure, then you're able to resolve some of these portal hypertensive complications. And is that something that I would presume is the goal for many patients that have uh, cirrhosis and liver disease, but how do you sort of detect that or monitor for that in an outpatient setting? We typically do that mostly clinically to begin with. So in patients who we see with decompensated liver disease from alcohol, we're able to obtain abstinence. We'll follow them in the clinic and we'll notice over time that, oh, they're needing less diuretics or, oh, their encephalopathy is much better to control. 
You can monitor it with the FibroScan as well. As I mentioned, we think that clinically significant portal hypertension is with a KPA over 25. Mm -hmm. But typically you would be doing that once their other portal hypertensive complications clinically have resolved. So the first thing that you will see is actual clinical benefit to patients when their decompensation events become easier to manage. So for instance, you could take a patient who has refractory ascites, needing paracentesis every week or two to the point where they no longer need diuretics. Now this can take a long time and typically we would say at least six to 12 months of removal of the offending agent before you're able to really get a sense of how much quote unquote recompensation you are going to have. Every patient is different and time is your best friend in that in that instance. Okay. And even more so in my experience as a medicine resident, I've cared for many patients with cirrhosis and we always sort of struggle as to when to refer to hepatology more formally. In your opinion, when should we refer patients to hepatology that have cirrhosis? So we're always happy to help in any patient that you have questions about or you're struggling about. I think any individual who has been diagnosed with cirrhosis should have the opportunity to make sure that that diagnosis is clear, that all the etiologic possibilities have been investigated and ruled out because most causes of cirrhosis do have a specific cause that we can do treatment for. If you are worried about clinically significant portal hypertension that you can't detect either based on their clinical history or imaging, and you want to risk stratify them with FibroScan, then that's a reason to refer them to liver clinic. And obviously, any patient with cirrhosis who has a decompensation event should um, get the opportunity to be seen by a specialist if possible in order to manage that, to discuss whether or not liver transplantation is a potential therapeutic option, or to discuss the natural history and the long-term prognosis for patients. Thank you. And those are all the questions I had. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about in the context of Bovino 7? <laughs> I think that Bovino 7 really simplifies things because before it was like, okay, well, we have to do endoscopy and, you know, when are we going to do that? And, and trying to get access to that for patients can be an issue. And so this really, I think, tries to simplify it and allows management of advanced chronic liver disease potentially even outside of hepatology, because as we know, there's many more patients who are developing chronic liver disease and cirrhosis, and specialty is a finite resource as well. And so I think it really empowers other clinical practitioners to be comfortable in managing these patients and understanding that you can prevent complications with the use of beta blocker, which is something that most internists are very comfortable prescribing. So I think it really, um, if anything else, it just provides patients with more access to potentially receiving appropriate therapies that could help in their natural history. That's fantastic. And it's around stable tradition to share some good stuff, um, sort of a piece of news or cultural event that's exciting for you. Do you have anything to share today, Dr. Fleming? Um, well, anybody who knows me knows that I'm a big sports fan. I'm particularly a big uh, American football fan and particularly a big Tom Brady fan. So it's been a very difficult year for Tom Brady fans, but the past two weeks, he has managed to take his, lead his team to wins. It hasn't necessarily helped with my fantasy football team as he's not on my team, but despite that, I think that that's been something that I've been um, thinking about looking forward to over the past couple of weeks. That's fantastic. For my good stuff, it's also sports related, but in the realm of bumblebees. So apparently bumblebees 
play with little tiny balls just for fun for some recent bee studies. And so there's much more than pollination that they can do. Uh, so maybe not at the level of Tom Brady, but <laughs> <laughs> also equally as cute and fun. Um, we might see them throwing some passes or something, you know, yeah. maybe starting their own football game. Yeah, who knows? And so overall, uh, that concludes our podcast for today. Thank you again, Dr. Fleming, for joining us and really enriching our knowledge with hematology. It's my pleasure. Hope this helps. <laughs> The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support. <laughs>